from St. Thomas Aquinas, Quad Libital 4, Q9, A3, response to the question whether a master, by determining theological questions, ought more to use reason or authority. Uh, in answer, St. Thomas says, a disputation can be ordered to a twofold end. First, when it is ordered towards removing a doubt, authorities must be used with whom those disputing will accept. For example, if when it is disputed with Jews, it is necessary to introduce authorities of the Old Testament. If with Manichees who reject the Old Testament, it is necessary to use only the authorities of the New Testament. Yet if with schismatics who accept the Old and the New Testament, yet not, yet not the doctrine of our holy ones, just as are the Greeks, it is necessary to dispute with them out of the authorities of the New and the Old Testament and those doctors whom they accept. Yet, if they accept no authority, it is necessary to flee unto natural reasons to convince them. Uh, second, a disputation can be ordered towards instructing the hearers in order that they might be led into the understanding of the truth which they already believe. And then it is necessary to lean on reasons, investigating the root of the truth, and making to know how what is said is true. Otherwise, if with bare authorities a master should determine a question, a certain hearer shall be certified that it is such, but shall acquire nothing of science or understanding, but shall depart empty. End quote. Well, welcome to Truths from the Text. My name is Aaron Ventura, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Ryan Hurd. This is episode two, and we are uh, beginning a discussion about the relationship between a theology and Bible reading. How does one impact the other? And today we're going to give a special focus on defining what theology is. So if that opening quotation was mostly incomprehensible to you, have no fear. Uh, Ryan is going to help us increase in our understanding of it. So uh, Ryan, I'm going to set up my question for you this way. Um, if someone wants to become a theologian or even just a more wise Christian, they just want to understand the Bible better. And let's say they walk into their uh, local seminary a bookstore, or even just uh, maybe your library, which I guess has still no books on the shelf behind you, um, one, of, one of our libraries, and they look around, they might be overwhelmed because they're going to see, one, a lot of books, and they're going to see titles such as uh, Reformed Dogmatics or Church Dogmatics or a, a line of books called Systematic Theology or books with the title Institutes of Theology. And then there's going to be all sorts of little adjectives connected to theology, biblical theology, historical theology, and on and on, you know, I could go. So my question to you uh, to help people is what kind of theology do you specialize in? And how does that kind of compare and contrast with some of these other theologies people might find on the shelf? Yeah, those are a lot of very good questions and some pretty technical questions as well. I think people in their experience, of course, depending on their exposure to different types of theologies, will be conscious of the fact that these differences are um, system shaping and that various different theologies are good for various different things. One of the real insights in that quotation you read from Thomas uh, that he shares is that theology and a certain style or kind of theology 
um, is, as I like to say, good for what it's good for, and it's not good for what it's not good for. And usually in the technicality of theology, we talk about constituting different sciences or academic studies, if you like, based upon the object of inquiry. We call it the subject of science uh, in scholasticism. But what Thomas is adverting us to here is um, the goal of knowledge. Uh, what, what really is the goal or the final cause um, that we're taking up to talk about uh, with that as our intention and that as our end? When we look around at different kinds of theologies, and particularly those that most people would have regular exposure to, for example, if they walked into your full library, not my empty one. Um, it would be uh, different kinds of theologies that have different kinds of ends or purposes involved. And again, these these are each um, good and valuable insofar as uh, achieving those purposes. Um, they are, in fact, enabled towards and insofar as those purposes are, are good and profitable. Um, I often talk to my students just very simply and about the fact that it's not good to use a knife to eat soup. A knife is good for cutting bread. When we want to eat soup, we use a spoon. That's what it's good for. And similarly, in the case of different theologies. So some different kinds of theologies that people might be familiar with, you already mentioned. Um, we could talk about uh, more historical theology, which is often uh, just reporting what other theologians have, ha have held in history. Um, often comparing and contrasting uh, various theological systems. Uh, in contrast, people might, might, might call the contrasting like a systematic theology or something like that. Obviously, there's lots of descriptors here, which would not talk about what historically has been said, but what is actually the case uh, and, and, and things of that sort. So uh, scholastic theology or the type of theology that I would engage in um, I would not call myself a historical theologian, but um, just a plain theologian, plain and simple. Uh, and so I try and focus on things that are, things that aren't, um, and you know, determining what is what, and then giving some understanding of, of why that's so. And uh, so people wouldn't call the kind of theology I do um, historical. Other theology that folks might be familiar with in the Reformed world, particularly um, some of our forebears would be like Alenctic theology. If you know Franciscus Turretin, a uh, 17th century reformed scholastic theologian, uh, an Italian, uh, who wrote a very important work called the Alenctics of Theology. And Alenctics is simply a, fa a fancy word for arguments or perhaps what we would call today apologetics, not in the narrow sense of um, speaking to folks who are not Christians and therefore having the goal of giving them truths, which we confess in the Christian faith. Again, hear that final causality. But Alenctics in the broader sense of engaging with folks who disagree um, whether we're talking about Roman Catholics or um, Lutherans, of course, these are very different kinds of disagreements, um, something like that. From a perspective of a Turretin, Alenctics is the doing of theology 
with the goal of convincing people of what uh, we hold to be true, and particularly in the context of folks who hold various errors. So that would be a lenctic theology. Um, kind of a, in contrast or uh, the other side of the coin to a lenctic theology, some people might be familiar with, call, with, with what is called positive theology. Positive theology isn't so much concerned with debating with folks who hold to a contrary opinion, but rather is concerned with merely reciting what is true uh, and asserting all the various truths about the topic that we can, just in a very simple, clear, or positive sense. So it's not in, engaged with, um, you know, helpful <laughs> arguments that would work in apologetic situation, but just getting us to conclude the truth. Positive theology, as most people uh, would call it uh, also in academia, is also what a lot of our Reformed forebears would call dogmatic theology, and what if you pick up like a Bavink or a Calvin or somebody like that, um, they're primarily concerned just to do positive theology and just to give the basic truths of the Christian faith. In the hyper-technicality of scholasticism and specifically Thomism, and again, always remember, it's good for what it's good for. It's not good for what it's not good for. Um, this so-called positive theology is specifically called dogmatics, which is concerned to determine what are the true judgments to hold, what is truly and what is not truly. So God is wise is a truth and God is not a body is also a truth. Those are different kinds of truths, of course. One is one is positive or affirmative, one is negative. Um, but in dogmatics, again, speaking as we would in scholasticism, we're concerned to determine what things are true and also to lead people to apprehend those truths as such by whatever and often the easiest of means. And that's what St. Thomas is actually speaking of in the first half of that quotation that you read, he's talking broadly about situations where the concern or the final cause or the goal is simply to get people to confess the truth. Again, for example, God is wise or God is not a body. In addition to what we call dogmatics in, again, scholasticism, we have what's called systematics. And again, we're using that term very technically here, different from how we might use that in day-to-day -day talk. But systematics is concerned with understanding the reasons why something is true rather than merely the fact that it's true. So the fact that it's true is what we're handling primarily in uh, dogmatics. But then gaining some understanding or insight as to the reason why or the explanation of its truth, that's what we're focused on in doing systematics, again, as technically using the word systematics. And St. Thomas is speaking of that in the second half of the, quote, uh, of the quotation. Systematics is where we differentiate between different kinds of explanations where in a set of things that are true, Although they're, of course, equally true, 
they don't all mean the same thing. So most people would be familiar with the fact that saying that God is love is, of course, true and a very important truth. And similarly, saying that God is a rock is also true and also an important truth. But when we step back and consider these equally true truths (laughs) from the perspective of systematics, where we want to understand the explanation or the reason why God is love, the reason why God is a rock, then we see that these two truths are very different from one another. God is a rock merely means that he's similar to a rock in how he behaves towards us. Namely, God supports us, comparable to how a rock can serve as the foundation of a house and and make sure it has a firm foundation. Whereas God is love means, quite simply, God is love. So in systematics, we're, we're comparing and contrasting two truths, again, not as to their truth, but as to their reason why or explanation, where we see one was just a proper and straightforward truth, and another was, again, a truth, but specifically a metaphorical one. God is a rock is a metaphor for God supports and holds us in his arms. So that would be some initial gestures as to different kinds of theology. And I would focus specifically in my work in systematics, uh, where we give a lot of the explanation underlying different kinds of truths um, that we would say particularly of God. Hmm. So when someone picks up a Calvin or a Bavink, and you, as I understand you, you're saying they're more focused on the dogmatic uh, part of things in terms of, I want you to hold the truth that God is Mm. Trinity, or I want you to hold the truth that God is a rock. And then proof text, here's a Psalm, it says God is a rock. Um, Here's a bunch of proof texts that show that somehow God is uh, three in one or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if someone picks up a Calvin or a Bavink, um, maybe this is a, a question about these these just two individual authors. Is this distinction in their minds, or is this a distinction that a Thomist or a Scholastic kind of is just using to help understand the these different works and that you know they've. Um, they're very important for us as, you know, reformed evangelical people. You, uh, it's pretty standard to read these works. So how much is this distinction that you're giving us between dogmatics and systematics clear in their mind? Um, or is it fuzzier for them? Um, I would say it's a bit fuzzier and it doesn't have to be a, a sharply negative or critical comment, but Again, different theologies are good for what they're good for and not for what they're not good for. So Calvin's specific goal is to give the basic truths of the Christian faith. And therefore, he writes with that end or purpose in mind. And yes, he's going to engage in, at points, some explanation of what these truths mean. Uh, Obviously, Calvin is going to recognize the differences between saying God is love versus God is a rock. Again, equally true, but nonetheless different as to their explanations. But because Calvin's specific goal is to give just the general heads of doctrine, 
and particularly the truths that we should confess, um, he's not going to be so uh, obsessed, if you like, about differentiating between when we're when we're when we're pushing towards truth and when we're pushing towards understanding. Um, we're we're sometimes doing both. Uh, we're sometimes pulling in two slightly discrete directions and making progress upon <clears throat> upon both lines. And of course, it's valuable uh, to do so. Sometimes, though, in professional theology, we want to do as a good a job as we possibly can. And so we introduce these very clear and fundamental distinctions and we follow them extremely obsessively so that we are strongest in achieving our respective ends uh, when we're doing our work. So if I'm arguing with somebody and I want to convince them as to the truth of the various judgments involved, the, the saying that God is something or God is not something, um, then there are various techniques that I'm going to want to uh, invoke that are specifically good uh, means or instruments for achieving that end. And when it's a very important situation, that's where I want to be very, very precise as to what my goal is. Similarly, when I merely intend to give folks understanding, then I'm going to speak to them in a different fashion. Um, so yeah, I would say that a guy like Calvin or Bovink, um, because they're they're not concerned to be so hyper-technical, these kinds of distinctions are a little fuzzier in their mind. And therefore, although we primarily are going to find them doing dogmatics, as we've defined it, nonetheless, it is going to be a mix. It is going to be a mix. Sometimes they're talking about the truth. Sometimes they're talking about the understanding thereof. Hmm. Um, so that's what I would say. There's, I forget where the quote is, but I think you uh, maybe sent it to me some time ago about the twofold uh, final cause of the teacher. And mm -hmm. as someone who, you know, every week has to preach, um, I found that very helpful. And so if I remember correctly, it's something like um, the twofold uh, end of the teacher is to get people to hold the truth and then to give them some understanding. But, um, is that, is that basically what he says? Uh, yeah, so that's that's coming from Thomas. Um, I don't remember the exact quotation you're speaking of, but that's something I often say. We just have two tasks in in theology: um, get people to hold the truth uh, and avoid error and, and things of that sort, and then make sure that they understand what they hold. Um, oftentimes, we might think of this in terms of. First of all, merely getting folks to repeat the truths, to confess the truths, to recite the truths. When we uh, recite the, the creeds on Sunday or when we catechize our children, oftentimes, first of all, all our goal is, is for them to hold what's true and to flag what's, what's false. As we grow and mature, we continue to do so. We continue to to add other truths as well, but we also gain some knowledge as to the reasons why. And that's the second goal of the teacher. Uh, it's a more technical and a more difficult goal. Um, but nonetheless, as we mature in our faith, we grow to understand what it means to confess God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, what it means to confess God as love and these, and these various things. And that's where 
our goal is understanding. Uh, our 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 uh, our discipline is the technical the technical term systematics, and we would look for different techniques and different theologians whose priority is systematics to help equip us to grow in those certain ways. Hmm. So, just to summarize for folks, um, you can think of dogmatics as uh, doing that make you hold the truth part. So, believe the creed. And then why believe the creed? Well, it's what all the best theologians and what the church has confessed for thousands of years, and that the authority of the church or the authority of people you know are a lot smarter than you who know the Bible well, or that Paul said it or Jesus said it. All those right. authorities are moving you to say, hey, um, if I say Jesus says God is a spirit, um, mm -hmm. I'm going to just take it as true because Jesus right. said it, even though I hardly understand what that means that God is a spirit. Like what even is a, a spirit, right? So that's the dogmatics part is you can think of the articles of faith or when someone wants to become a Christian and they say, they hear, Oh, God will forgive my sins. At that moment, they just need to believe that God will forgive their sins. If they put their trust in Christ they don't necessarily need a full atonement theory to understand how it is that God can forgive their sins. So that's kind of all in the realm of dogmatics is just making people to believe the truth and that hence all these appeals to authority. Um, and mm. then the systematics is, okay, now help me understand how is it that God forgave my sins? How is it that God saved me? So often systematics is when you're coming on the backside of things and just trying to now better understand all these things that you already um, have heard or, you know, believe or pray. Um, you think of the Lord's Prayer or the Ten Commandments, a lot of these super basic things. But like, what does it mean for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, you pray that, but we want you to pray with more understanding of what of what that means. Um, anything else you want to add on that distinction between dogmatics and, and systematics? No, I think, uh, I think that most people, if they advert to their experience, will, will be able to recognize times where they're merely reciting the truth and they're doing so because their mother told them to do so because they read in Holy Scripture that this was the case. And of course, Holy Scripture always uh, speaks truly. Uh, and then the experience of later on having those flashes of insight of being like, ah, I know, I understand now. Um, for all of us, it's a continued growth in both areas. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a daily experience to grow both in apprehending more truths and in deeper understanding of those truths. Um, and so, yeah, in theology, we want to focus on both those tasks and achieve both those tasks, especially that second one I find is often missing for folks. And, and Thomas has a really stark warning in that quotation that you, that you read at the beginning, Aaron, um, for teachers, he calls them masters in the, in, in the schools. Um, we might call them professors today if we, or, or, or just pastors is a really stark warning for professors or pastors or teachers who 
merely focus on the first goal and get those who are listening, those whom uh, they're training to merely say, it is, it is, it is, it's not, it's not, it's not at the right times, um, merely reciting the truth. Thomas says, if you only do that and you don't give them explanations and reasons why, then yes, they are certain about the truth, but you're sending them away empty, Hmm. empty. And that is a grave condemnation, not of the person who sadly leaves empty, the student, the learner, but of the person who wouldn't go the extra mile to inject explanation into their mind so that they're not uh, empty of insight or knowledge and they're merely speaking verbally or holding because of a decision to, to the truth or something like that. So we want to really focus on, at least I do, that second part so that we prevent people from being empty of knowledge and sending them away. Vacant uh, is mm-hmm. the Latin that, that Thomas uses. Yeah, it makes me think of a lot of the work of parenting. You are telling your kid, all right, I want you to eat uh, your dinner. And the kid is saying, why? And you could just say, because I said so. And yes. and they need to obey that, right? You got to enforce that as a parent, because I said so is sufficient for you to eat your dinner. And we, yes. we try to have this kind of rule in our house where you need to obey first and then you can ask mm. the why. So that's mm. like, I'm the, the dogmatic part is eat your dinner. Why? Because an authority said so. And uh, yes. you need to listen to that authority because God said so. And then yes. once you say, yes, daddy, now, mm. now you can ask why. And now I'll sit down and possibly give you the explanation that if you eat your dinner, it'll make your body strong and you'll get ice cream at the end of it. And now they have some, they're not vacant. (laughs) There's some satisfaction of understanding. And so like we're doing this all the time. Parents are doing this all the time. And that's kind of all we're talking about when we're reading our Bibles and we're, we're hearing all of these truths but mm. it's pretty overwhelming to try to figure out how all of these truths in this really long book all um, don't contradict one another. Mm-hmm. I forget who said it, but um, it kind of a uh, street level definition of systematics is kind of just like uh, um, understanding one verse and remembering all the other verses that you've read. Mm-hmm. So it's just not, allowing one truth over here to cancel out another truth, but rather seeing and understanding how they all harmonize. Um, Mm. Usually when people start making errors theologically, um, it's because they're forgetting some negation or some truth that Mm. maybe they once learned, but have forgotten and just need to deploy here so like the God is love, God is a rock is one of those examples where if someone is thinking God is is actually a rock, well, right. we've got some problems. They're forgetting some other things that uh, uh, God has said about himself. Um, hmm. Ryan, I was wondering, do you have any um, do you have any precise definition of just theology that you really like? I know there's lots of 
definitions out there that have been set forth, some better, uh, some worse. Is there any one that you, you really like? Oh my, um, well, it depends on, on what kind of definition we're looking for here. You know, when you're doing theology professionally, you, you have to kind of, uh, be a little bit more stoic and less flowery and less practical. And if you want to do that, well, the definition of theology is merely uh, knowledge uh, of God, knowledge where God is the object of inquiry or he's the, the subject matter um, is how we would uh, speak of it, uh, particularly in, in, in Thomism. Um, but, you know, real, real life theology, which is different from scholasticism, from professional theology uh, and different for good reasons. Um, you know, the science of living to God, it's where we have truths that we don't just confess as true, we don't just understand as true, but we also, um, we, we also guide our will and our affections uh, along the lines of those truths. And so a lot of the Puritans or a lot of Reformed Orthodox, such as Petrus von Maastricht, folks might be familiar with his recently translated work. Uh, it's titled Theoretical Practical Theology because although in the classroom we might be concerned merely about the abstract, the theory, and not the practice, um, nonetheless, in real life, we, we both want to know truths and also live by truths, will by truths, love by truths, have our will and affections and ultimately our actions guided by them. So, if that's what we're talking about, you know, the science of living to God is 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 pretty good. Uh, someone like William Ames, the Puritan, has that kind of definition. Um, but yeah, it depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. So the original question that I asked you is, what kind of theology do you specialize in? And so, uh, can you give us now the very summary answer to that question? What kind of theology do you? want to do? And what is the final cause of that? Uh, I try to do the systematics end of theology, whose goal is giving some understanding of the various truths that uh, are true of God. Okay. Um, I want to pick up on just a few uh, words that I imagine... Uh, people have no understanding of. Um, and we might just try to do this in the last few minutes of each episode as I think about the last episode. So uh, in last episode, we we said um, there's kind of the biblicists and there's classical theists. Now we're throwing a around this word uh, scholastic. Um, we've talked about mm. a Thomism. We'll have to do a whole episode on what, what the heck is, is Thomism, but we don't have enough time for that here. So let's, let's see if we can just chip away real quick. What's your kind of rough and ready definition of what a biblicist is? Um, a biblicist in a non-pejorative or non-negative critical sense uh, is somebody who uh, uses Holy Scripture as their principle of knowing. So in that sense, hopefully we're all biblicists. Uh, that's a good thing. Biblicist in a bad or negative sense, a pejorative sense is often how it's used. It's like a slur would be those who um, 
primarily pay attention just to the letters or the words of Holy Scripture and don't actually pierce through to the truth claims that God is making us to do. So they'll merely recite the words, but they won't actually be doing anything in their mind. Um, that would be uh, a biblicist in a bad sense of the term. Um, the letters or the words of Holy Scripture are um, most precious. They're holy, of course, um, but they are instruments or tools that God um, through inspiration and on all of that uh, uses to guide us into true knowledge in our, in our mind so that we're not merely saying things with our mouths, but knowing things with our heads. Um, and so a biblicist stops at the mouth level or stops at the, the brain level and doesn't get up into, uh, you know, the soul. Uh, what was the, what were the other terms that we were defining here? So that's a biblicist. So that's a biblicist. Uh, could you, do you have any examples uh, just offhand of, of a specific text where you could contrast how a biblicist might read a text versus a non-biblicist in the, and I mean in the bad biblicist in, way. In the, in the pejorative sense. You know, um, sometimes the, the silliest and easiest examples are the clearest. Um, when it's written in Holy Scripture that God has a hand, somebody who's, you know, we would say being just a little weird uh, and, and, and hyper-biblicist about paying attention to the letters or the words might suppose that that means God has a hand uh, actually. He has this body part up there. God has some something of like a spiritual kind of body or something like that. Um, a non-biblicist would, would say, no, this is a metaphor for God is strong because just as a hand is that whereby we uh, engage things and that whereby we work. Uh, similarly, God is said to have a hand because he works and his works are efficacious and things of that sort. So, a, a biblicist would, would tend to fall short of that further explanation and, and might be led to imagine God having some kind of body part or some kind of body, something like that. Maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. Okay. Um, yeah, that would be a quick example. Yeah, that, that was basically the kind of thing I had in mind. Because I'd want to say the virtue or the good part of biblicism is that you care about the letter. Um and you care about the truth Attack. signified by the letter and where they go wrong right. is where um, uh, they're not thinking about all the other, other letters in a certain sense that tell them God, God can't have a hand or he doesn't have a hand. And so they're wanting to, they really want you to be able to say, Hey, if scripture says God has a hand, I need to say God has a hand but in their mind, they haven't made the negation that scripture makes us to make other places that God is a spirit or doesn't have a body. Right. right. Um, we could tackle classical theists another time. Uh, scholastic. So in my, in my mind, there's kind of biblicism, scholasticism, and this is yeah. kind of what we're starting to expose people a little bit to. How how would you yeah. talk about scholasticism? Because that doesn't sound like the most fun uh, title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yes. Well, I think similar to Bibl- the, the word biblicist, it, it's used in a positive or good sense and is often used as a, a pejorative or a slur. So in a bad way, a scholastic is you know, kind of an ornery uh, theorist who's ivory towered or, or something like that, um, often is devoid of encounter with uh, Holy Scripture and is just off there in the clouds or something like that. So those types of pejoratives are really, really common. Uh, also, they're common in the uh, in the reformers. Someone like Luther will complain about the scholastics, and the reason why he's doing that is because, truth be told, there—I mean, there are there are always the airheads among us. I, I sometimes can be that, um, but particularly in Luther's day, there were a number of very uh, well-known folks who uh, were just theoretical and 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 banding truths about in the ivory towers and things like that and so some of the background is obviously more complex to more of a pejorative use uh of scholastic uh, even in our even our tradition among among early reformers but in a good sense or a semi-neutral sense scholastic simply uh was a term used to describe those who did theology in the schools we would speak of seminaries today um, and in this sense, scholastic really means the exact same thing as the English academic or professional. Um, it, it does have, uh, you know, it does designate a specific body of academics or professionals, um, specifically who lived in the high medieval period or a little bit later or something like that. Um, but it just meant folks who were professionals, folks who were professors of theology, uh, things like that. And so that has a much more neutral term or or, or a much more neutral usage. And that's what scholastic would mean. Or more specifically, those who lived in the medieval period, like Thomas Aquinas or Bonventura or Albert Albert the Great, somebody like that. Anselm was called the father of scholasticism. Um, So that that type of body of men, in contrast to the patristics, we often often call high medieval theologians scholastics because they were being trained in the universities, things like that. Hmm. And how much of the difference in audience is contained in that idea of scholastic theology? Is it more of the object or the subject that is in reference there or both? Um, different audience is really, really important. So like, again, to refer to the quote you read at the beginning here, Thomas says, we only do hardcore systematics in the schools. It's merely the, the the speciality that a professor does in the classroom. So outside uh, in, in catechesis or in, in normal person life where, where we all live, like we might not be doing those kind of hyper-technical moves that we have to do. So yeah, difference of audience is super important. And this is also somewhat somewhat uh, to do with uh, differences between like the reformers and like a Thomas Aquinas, very different, very, very different audience. Thomas is, is trying to train pastors slash other professors <laughs> of theology. Uh, you know, if, if that's not you, that's, that's fine. Praise God. Your, your calling is, is otherwise and is good. Um, Whereas the reformers are primarily concerned to speak God's truths to everyday people. Uh, and 
admittedly, and this is very important during that time period, normal everyday people like ourselves were often overlooked. And so that's why you see among the reformers, uh, an emphasis and maybe even to the point of an overemphasis or an exclusive emphasis on doing theology in such a way that it's helpful for us normal people. It's tailored down, um, these sort, these sorts of things. So different audience, different target audience is very important and is going to, of course, delimit the types of things that we're doing. Hmm. Uh, if someone was interested in scholastic theology, where would you point them maybe first? What would be some resources to just help them understand? Here, here's kind of a little taste of what scholastic theology is like. That's a really hard question. It would really depend on who is asking me that question. Um, because various things might not be so helpful for certain persons and other people might find various other things helpful. So maybe, maybe, maybe Thomas Aquinas's compendium of theology, which is, um, a much more, a much simpler, uh, and shorter work of theology that will expose people to some of the technicality, some of the truncatedness is very dense. Um, some of the style, uh, folks might, might find that helpful, uh, to expose themselves to at least initially, um, a little bit different in genre, but nonetheless also scholastic would be something like Anselm's Prosologion, which is a very famous text for lots of reasons. It's also very, very, very technical. Um, but it's a more devotional style in a certain mode. It's offered to God as a prayer. Um, and so slightly different kind of scholastic material, but nonetheless, uh, would, would help expose people to that. Um, yeah, th th those would be two off the top of my head. Do you have any, any ideas yourself, Aaron? Um, yeah, I, I, I agree that it would totally depend on the specific individual and where I, where they were at in their learning. So and what they actually wanted. <laughs> yes. Cause sometimes it's like, um, you know, you give someone scholastic theology and, and they read it and they're going to be allergic to it for the rest of their life. Cause they had a bad experience. And I think I, because I had you as kind of a, um, someone to help me uh, as a teacher along the way, if I didn't have a teacher, I think a, it's actually can be kind of almost dangerous to go down the scholastic route. Um, to go Google. Yeah. Um, so hopefully maybe this, this show can help people um, safely access things that um, are good for where, for where they're at, you know, a resource. Let me see if I've got it back here. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Bernard, uh, well, Wellner. Um, this is, this is a dictionary of scholastic philosophy. And as someone who makes, you know, mind maps and, you know, you know, tries to visualize stuff and map things out in my mind, this is, this is just a dictionary, but I found this really helpful. And for folks who are hearing this, this show and hearing 
uh, you and I use a lot of words that they've either maybe never heard or in just different ways, I found that just the vocabulary was a pretty steep learning curve for me and still is um, in certain respects. So as soon as you get into some of uh, St. Thomas's stuff, it's like, well, you got to actually go take a course in metaphysics. You got to know what act and potency is. You got to do a lot of not the most fun work. And you also just have to really pace yourself and say, hey, um, this is probably going to take me a few years to really grasp uh, and have real understanding of the distinction between act and potency. But then once you have it, you can do it. It's a very important distinction, but I don't, I can't really think of very many reformed uh, theologies that get into that. You know far better than I, but I'm like, I don't think the whole act potency distinction was ever taught to me until I had to go. I think I read, you know, W Norris Clark or some of the other metaphysic guys. Um, So I found that very overwhelming and daunting at first. And so hopefully we can chip away. Maybe one day we'll do an episode on the distinction between act and potency and you can make things crystal clear for us. So, (laughs) excuse me. All right. Well, uh, anything else on, uh, that you want to add on, uh, scholasticism, biblicism, or encouragement for folks as they're just kind of getting their bearings around all these different theologies that are out there? I don't think so. I, I think, yeah, what you what you mentioned there at the end is, is helpful and important. Um, go slow. Things take a really, really long time. And not everything is worth it for for you, for your particular calling. Um, and that's okay. Um, so some, some of these things are so hyper-technical that they're not worth it for most people. I run into things all the time where it's like, that's really cool. And it would be really great if I could understand all those things, but it's not, it's not my capability. It's not my capacity. It's not my calling. So yeah, it depends on what's uh, actually helpful uh, and going to be helpful in the long run. Uh, Nonetheless, with that said, there are a number of really helpful and fairly basic distinctions that um, have significant payoff close to home and in normal everyday life. I constantly find that I go and work on something really, really technically for months and months and months and months. And then I get done and I realize, oh, wow. Um, I was, I was working roundabout in a very precise way. The fact that God is love means something more significant than God is a rock. It's like, okay, that's great. Everybody knew that Ryan. Why'd you do all that work? Well, we did all that work because we wanted to be a little bit clearer on just how loving God was. And the fact that although God isn't actually a rock, nonetheless, it's equally true that he supports and things like that. So being able to make those types of moves at the end, the clarity and the payoff is really close to home oftentimes. And and I think in this podcast series, we'll try and Um, bring those more helpful distinctions uh, to bear and uh, hopefully folks will profit from them. Great. Well, continue to let us know if there are uh, terms that went way over your head, way way over your head that you would like us to define in future episode. We'll keep, we'll keep uh, working at that. And until next time, uh, keep on reading.